Hello and welcome to Media Files, a podcast about emerging themes and issues in the media. I'm Andrew Dodd. Today we're taking a look back at some of the biggest issues of 2018 with our special guest, Kath Viner, the Editor-in-Chief of The Guardian, along with regular Media Files hosts, Andrea Carson from La Trobe University and Matthew Rickardson from Deakin University. Hello to you all. Good afternoon. Yes. Hello. (laughs) Uh, Kath, why are you in Australia? What brings you here? Well, I like to come quite regularly. Uh, We've got a fantastic flourishing uh, local edition, Guardian Australia, which is edited and uh, run by Australians. Um, And uh, um, and obviously I set it up in 2013, so I have a particular interest, but I try to visit at least once a year and I've been twice this year. Well, the, I suppose, really interesting news about The Guardian is that you're on the brink, you say, of breaking even. <laughs> and you think that by April next year, you're going to hit this magical break-even figure. What does That's that right. look like? What does it mean? Well, um, you know, when I started as editor in 2015, we, we lost £57 million that first year. Um, and we got it down to £19 million loss last year. And we're aiming to to get to zero uh, by April, which is the end of the uh, financial year in the UK. So it would be a big achievement. We won't have broken even since the 90s. Um, and obviously, we've we've done some stuff like uh, we've taken action and costs and so on. Like, But I think the big shift has been the shift to uh, reader contributions. So this is readers giving us uh, money for something that they can get for free. But on other metrics, you've also been growing quite substantially in terms of the number of people that you've employed and how big the newsrooms become in the last five years that you've been here. Uh, are you talking about Australia or globally? Oh, Australia, um, the number of people that you have working out of the Melbourne and Sydney offices. Yeah, so in Guardian Australia, which I think is a real success story, um, um, we've now got about uh, 90 people working for The Guardian in Australia, um, more than half of them journalists, um, and a good number in uh, Sydney, um, um, and the majority in Sydney, but a good number in, in Melbourne and and, uh, and representation in Brisbane and a good team in Canberra as well. So it's, um, yeah, we've, we've, we've definitely made investment in Australia. Um, But we're breaking even in Australia as well. And again, that's where we find we've got fantastic reader contributions here, proportionately more reader contributions from Australia than anywhere else in the world to The Guardian. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, And there's a particular pattern as well. Australians really like to give us money, uh, give us what we call recurring contributions. They give us money and say, here you are. We love The Guardian. You got, you know, we're going to give you money uh, every month. And it's a particular pattern that's most pronounced in Oz. Why um, is that? What, what's going well, on Well, you in can Oz? tell me. Oh, I'll tell you, <laughs> as a contrast, so our American uh, readers, who are also incredibly generous, uh, but they'll give us money in what we call a one-off contribution. They'll read yeah. an article. They'll say, we love that article. Here's a load of cash for it. Um, and if you do more articles like that, I might give you some more money in future. Okay. But um, it's more transactional. It's more conditional. Where we found with our Australian audience, they love The Guardian and just say, do your thing. You can tell me why, that's, why that is. Well, I, I wonder <laughs> whether it's got to do with the paucity of other good media around or the sense of doom about it disappearing. You know, maybe it's a reflection of our concentrated media market. And perhaps what's particularly happened to Fairfax and the takeover by nine. Yeah. And is there tax deductibility with those donations that people are, are putting forward in no. return? No. no. So, so I think that that's the extraordinary thing that, yeah. that the shift from, okay, you used to buy a newspaper, cost you a relatively small amount, like a cup of coffee. And then when newspapers, including yours online, were given away for free, as in anyone could access them anywhere, there was this fear that that would mean no one's going to actually buy it in the future. And that kind of has been true for many, many people, but you've introduced this different way of going about it. What what do you reckon that's about, that, that you've actually had this success? Because 
the academic research a couple of years ago wasn't mm. showing that this would be likely. Yeah, it's sort of curious, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it's a sort of, someone said it to me the other day that it's almost like an emotional paywall. Um, you get it for free, but do you, you shouldn't really get it for free, should you? So, you know, you have an emotional engagement okay. with it in order to um, complete that transaction. And we ask our readers, our contributors, why they're giving us the money. And they're very responsive to that question. I think it's something like 75,000 readers have told us why they've given us oh, money. Oh, and why? Why? The reason that I find most exciting and that took, took us by surprise uh, when they first started telling us about 18 months ago was that I'm giving you money because I can afford to and I want you to stay open and free for everybody else. I want it to be wow. that it's not rich, just rich people who can afford to read you. There aren't many news sources like The Guardian that are progressive but also based in facts. So I'm giving you money so that that can stay free. And we've now changed quite a lot of our messaging to reflect that. Um, they also say, you know, uh, nobody else reports the environment in such depth. No one else re re reports uh, policy in such de depth or immigration issues or uh, indigenous issues and takes them so seriously. And I think there's a they really appreciate the most serious most worthy end of what we do and that's another thing that's so exciting about this model in contrast with the um the sort of clickbait advertising model that we were looking at five years ago um, that drove really bad behavior i think in journalists it drove people to write what 10 stories well you know obliging young journalists to write 10 stories a day not yeah, making a phone yeah. call never leaving the office churning it out just yeah. copying it out just for the clicks just following google trends all day long rather than trying to find out what's happening. And I think the ad model actually drove quite um, bad behaviour. What's really um, exciting about this model is that it drives really positive behaviour. It rewards deep investigations. Our investigative work is what drives the most contributions you know when we, okay. we have so what we have this um, this great research where we can see the last item that someone read before they decide to contribute. So obviously that's not necessarily why they've contributed, so you, but it's a sort mm. of a proxy. What's that telling you? What are well, the Well, you know, the number one, it's the environment. It's Yemen. You know, Is it it's, the environment or climate change or both? Both. Right. I mean, or, you know, it's, it's yeah. um, uh, species loss. It's absolutely okay. everything yeah. in that area, um, which I think people feel powerless to do something about, but they want us to keep reporting. So that would be one. You know, it is the most serious end. It is the most, you know, Cambridge Analytica, our big series of scoops on that, that was a huge driver. Um, so um, partly, was, because, stories... partly because Facebook, Facebook tried to um, sue us to stop us publishing and so that the... drove our readers so yeah. wild. You so know? the perverse thing might be the more positive and upbeat you are, the less money you get. Well, no, because no, because actually our biggest driver ever was the moment uh, two weeks ago when we announced that we now have a million supporters worldwide, a million people in the last three years have supported us. And that was our biggest driver ever. And, they were and that was a winner. Yeah. yeah. Do you mean do you mean yeah. you suddenly got a whole batch of new people? Yes. Or, or people who'd given one off perhaps in the past, changing to giving us in a recurring okay. contribution way. Is this extendable to other parts of the media or, or uh, I mean, there's something unique about The Guardian's um, structure in the sense that you have the CP Scott Trust, which for many years is underwritten and given a kind of solid financial base to the to the company. News Corp doesn't have that, for example, and, and what was Fairfax Media didn't have that and so on. So is this extendable, do you think? I think, I mean, that's a question. I wouldn't like to say say to the rest of the media, oh, come and follow, follow up. Follow. Not I mean, I think, like you say, people know if they give money to The Guardian, it goes to journalism. It doesn't go to a proprietor because we don't have one. Mm. It doesn't go to shareholders because we don't have any. And if we were to make any money, uh, it would be ploughed back into the journalism. So they know that it's going to the right place. Um, also, I think we have a close relationship with our readers that's built up by doing different kinds of journalism and I think that you probably need that as well but I wouldn't like to say it's a prescription for everybody else. 
a study that I did uh, last year, which included The Guardian, which was looking at the digital-only newsrooms and their business models. And most of them had a hybrid business model in that revenue streams were coming in from more than one source. And we've just spoken about the, um, the subscription model or the donation model that you've spoken about. But what also about other revenue sources that are important to The Guardian? And also, I'd like to get your view on native advertising and whether that gets us into a grey area as uh, in journalism of crossing that line where readers may not necessarily know what's journalism and what's advertising. Yes. Yeah, so um, we also have a, a mixed model. Absolutely. I mean, the contributions is the brand new bit of our business model, so which is why we're talking about it a lot. We also have a flourishing advertising business as well, um, which actually year on year is up, which is um, it was, certainly didn't look like it was going to be the case two, three years ago. We also have subscriptions um, in that we have people take out a subscription to the paper in the UK, uh, also to Guardian Weekly, if I can just have two minutes on Guardian Weekly. So this is a weekly international newspaper, as was, that was invented in 1919, and I always joke has had zero investment since then. But this is that, the one that used to be on rice paper. It used or, to be on yeah. rice paper. Mm. It was always very popular in Australia. Mm. And we've reached, relaunched it six weeks ago as a glossy, full-colour, beautifully designed magazine. And mm. it's gone bonkers. Mm. Um, it's particularly gone bonkers in Australia. Um, it used to be about um, a tenth of our audience for it was Australian. Now it's a fifth. Um, you know, it's, it's absolutely going mad. And what's really interesting about the new subscribers is that they are young people. They're millennials. Yeah. And I keep running around the office shouting, we've reinvented print for a new generation. <laughs> I mean, I, d- I wouldn't like to say that we have, but it's, um, it's too soon yet. But it's a really successful product. So there's that kind of subscription. Uh, there's advertising. And then we're also doing uh, philanthropy. We're getting money from uh, philanthropy now in a way that we didn't used to um, in quite successful ways. So in Australia, um, um, some of our Indigenous reporting is paid for by a foundation. Um, and we're looking at other sources in that area and, as and well. And what about um, native advertising yes. like uh, Guardian Labs? Yes. Can you tell us how that works yeah. and whether you've scaled it back a little from what you started with? We haven't scaled it back. We just have incredibly um, concrete, careful rules. You know, we have um, a panel that decides what we're going to take and what we're not going to take. And that has that has um, executives from editorial team on it. We reject quite a lot. Um, and we take quite a lot, and I think, um, and, we, and we've not had problems with it, um, and I don't think we've fooled our readers because that's the. Inter- I mean, that's absolutely what you must avoid with the native advertising. Kath, we've just had an election here in Victoria where the hard Labor to miss. government, yeah, hard to miss. <laughs> Labor government has returned. There have been surprises in all sorts of places where we didn't expect to find them. I suppose that's the nature of a surprise. The Murdoch press has got it wrong quite, quite considerably. They had been campaigning for a coalition government in in many respects, and were disappointed. So I wonder whether we could have a chat about that for a second and what Mm. it says about Murdoch Press missing the mark elsewhere, whether that's going on. Is what we're seeing here in this little microcosm in this corner of the world happening elsewhere? Tell Mm. us what's going on in Britain with Murdoch Press and the US. Well, I mean, in Britain, all we talk about these days is Brexit and Britain's entirely declining influence in the world. Um, You know, um, it's kind of a depressing time. Uh, much of the press push for Brexit in a very sort of jingoistic way. Um, and a lot of them have now rode back from it just as it's too late. You Is know. that also the case with the Murdoch tabloids there, that they're pulling back from the Leave campaign? Or are you still seeing the same sort of strident I mean, I, I would, I would, I mean, I, I just think that the Sun is not as influential as it was on in any way. And that's not just proven uh, by results, because um, as I recall, they did bag Brexit 
So uh, there is a decline in influence, do you think? Yeah, I really do. I really do. Is What's stepping into the breach? Who is influential now? In Britain? Hmm. Well, it's Facebook, isn't it? The, isn't that where young people are primarily going to to get their news? I mean, it may not be Facebook producing the news, but uh, it's the algorithms that determine what people get to see and that's where younger readers are going to find out what's happening in the world. I don't think they go to Facebook anymore, though. I mean, they go online, definitely. I think they go to YouTube and Snapchat and Instagram, but I don't think they go to they go to Facebook. Do you mean it's just older people like us who are on Facebook now? <laughs> are which... you still on Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> I'm very old. <laughs> Sit down. Just, because of the, we'll get just it. because of the attack of fake news and, and uh, attacking our network, I, I just want to ask you, sir. I'm changing it from fake news, though. Do, doesn't that under Very fake news. I know, ahead. but aren't you? Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, real news, Mr. President, real news. Aren't you, aren't you concerned, sir, that you are undermining the people's faith in the First Amendment, freedom of the press, the press in this country, when you call stories you don't like fake news? Why not just say it's a story I don't like? When I do you that. Call it fake news. No, I do you're undermining that. confidence no, no. in our news that. media. Here's the thing. Isn't okay. that important? I understand what you and you're right about that, except this. See, I know when I should get good and when I should get bad. And sometimes I'll say, Wow, that's gonna be a great story. And I'll get killed. I know what's good and bad. I'd be a pretty good reporter, not as good as you. What we're listening to there is um Donald Trump having uh, a go at uh, Jim Acosta from CNN. And we don't really need to go into the background of all of this, but it raises the topic of the media's dealings with Donald Trump. It's, of course, a perennial issue while he's in office. Have there been any major developments, any sort of interesting twists in how that's happened this year, or is it more of the same? Well, the thing I want to discuss in this context, because I, I, I now think we... There are so many, not only scandals, but micro-scandals and, and gaffes and nominally outrageous statements and so on, that, that it is actually not only almost impossible to keep track of them all, they, you know, there are various people, whether it's the Washington Post or Amy Siskind or whatever, who are compiling them and they're, they're wearingly sort of, um, well, they're wearing for you. So I read this piece in the New York Review of Books just recently by Fintan O'Toole. It's a review of the new book by Michael Lewis, The Fifth Risk, which, um, he says is fantastic, but he he talks about he talks about how Trump has in a sense flipped the regular uh, notion of politics, where or a politician tries to hide their kind of shame, the shameful aspects of what they do or the lies they tell or the hypocrisy. Um, Trump doesn't only not try to hide them; he he kind of brandishes them. So I'll just read this lines. I think it's really strong that Fintan O'Toole has written. He says. Trump disorients us by wearing his most contemptible qualities as if they were crown jewels, <laughs> by brandishing as trophies what others would conceal as shameful secrets. He uses his dirty linen as a cloth with which to polish up his performance. The standard journalistic tool of a politician says X but does Y, you point out why politician collapses in a heap, isn't happening anymore with, well, is it with Trump? So the question to you, Kath, and also to all of us to think about is, what, what do we do as journalists to to report on this way in which the president goes about doing his work? I mean, that's brilliantly put, isn't it? it? Isn't that's it? amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, there was a moment um, early on in um, Trump's presidency where he'd, he'd said something outrageous. And uh, we've got an international team that's based in Australia. And when I, by the time I'd woken up, they'd fact-checked this thing he'd done. I forget what it was. And I thought, oh, that's a good idea. And then I saw that the BBC had fact-checked what he'd done and the New York Times had fact-checked. And I suddenly saw that 
all of these journalists all around the world had been just fact-checking this thing that was blatantly untrue to prove it was untrue. And I thought, God, we we're all wasting our time because that's a definition of a commodified waste of time when, when dwindling journalistic resources. And surely the thing to do is report on what is actually happening. So um, less what Trump is saying, but actually what his administration is doing. We've been doing this big project in the US on um, the privatisation of public lands, um, which readers are really loving because, you know, this is something they really care about. There's all these beautiful national parks in America. And we don't hear about what he's doing because we're too busy concentrating on what he's saying. So that would, I would have thought, would be one approach. I wonder about one of the bigger implications of this, though, and that is the weaponisation using fake news in order to weaponise against journalists and the end result of that being that the general public perhaps have lower trust in mainstream media as a consequence of that weaponisation and whether journalists haven't pushed back enough to refute some of the claims that Trump has made. I think they're doing it now, but I remember when Dana Milbank was here from the Washington Post about a year and a half ago and he made the observation that journalists at first thought Trump was funny during the primaries. And he got, you'll remember this, he got enormous coverage, a lot more than Hillary Clinton or other members um, going for the primaries with the Republican Party got. And that just played to his advantage. And he said it took quite a while for the American press to realise that this isn't funny and we need to push back on it and we need to refute every time we're accused of producing fake news for the sake of that public good, which is for the media to be able to trust that the information that they're getting is reliable. So it's in so literally sort of push back immediately say that's not true you know you, you mean, mean in an interview you mean in a moment yeah when how yeah. do you mean actually? well it would have to be immediate wouldn't it uh, but when you have and we see it in australia too there's been a contagion effect and it's been mainly on the conservative side of politics but other parties have been involved where if they don't like what they're hearing and typically this is levied at the abc they say that's fake news um, and, and it's clearly not fake news in many examples. So I, I wonder whether journalists also have a responsibility to say, with respect, can you address the question, this is true? But aren't they doing that? No, they aren't. We've done a study on this. What do you mean um, they aren't as in they aren't? doing that at all. We found uh, doing an analysis six months after Trump came in, they might start doing it here and looking at the contagion effect, that uh, 80% of journalists were not pushing back when they were being accused of producing something fake. I'm not talking about the Jim Acosta kind of pushing back, but there is nevertheless the follow-up question and the follow-up follow-up question. But politicians are just so good, so adept now at ignoring questions that the question as a weapon or as a tool is very, very blunt. I mean, there's an interesting parallel with politics. So Alexandria Casio-Cortez, the new uh, uh, American, uh, she's the representative for the Bronx, I think. Um, and she says that she doesn't talk about Trump. She doesn't mention him. She says all about all the good things she's going to do for working class Americans, but she doesn't talk about Trump. And there's something in that, isn't there? I mean, this we're, we're all obsessed with him. He draws, he's yeah. the most sort of magnet, magnetic presence that's sort of ever been. And I well, wonder whether he's got something to do with your um, break-even point, the fact that people are turning to you because you're providing commentary in the midst of all of this madness and accusation of fake news. Are you getting a Trump bump like No, others? I mean, we didn't seem to get the one in the same... As I say, it's, for us, it's our original reporting that seems to be driving it and these positive moments of collective excitement that we found a new model. I mean, it's really not... Um, a negative thing, I'd say. It's around. It's much more around original reporting. And that's that's what the fifth risk, which I mentioned before by Michael Lewis, who's the guy who wrote Moneyball and The Big Short and, and so on, um, that's what he does. He does exactly what you your reporters have done, which is he goes and looks at 
what various government departments in America do and don't do and how, you know, they've got incredibly bland titles like the Department of Agriculture and you find out that they have done all sorts of uh, work that has created scientific innovations and so on. And he takes you to what they're doing, but also the way in which um, it's, again, another version of what Trump is doing, which is he's not appointing people to run these departments or not appointing people to staff them. So it's one way to kill a, what a department is doing is to appoint people who try and undermine it. And you've seen a version of that with, I think, Scott Pruitt, the, the EPA, and, yeah. a, a, you know, being appointed to run the EPA, yeah. the Environmental Protection Agency, when he is used to be bluing with it legally. So you've got that. But he, the other way to do it is you just don't appoint people, you know, and so work doesn't get done. So the things that the public relies on from the public sector over there don't get done, but they don't kind of quite notice it until, in a sense, it's too late. So it's about reporting on that. But don't you think yeah. it's also our job to make sure that we report more on, uh, you know, why people believed in Trump or why they voted for him in the first place, why sure. they've been so neglected over so long, um, listen to their stories, sort of find out about their lives, about the social inequality, economic inequality. And I think, again, just reporting on Trump takes you away from that bigger picture. And I think also alienates you from those communities that we're there to report on. You know, journalists have become very elite ourselves and we have, mm. we must not be. We must be much more like report, well, the societies the, we report on. One of the really positive things we've seen happen this year is another big in a collaborative investigation. The implant files have just been Isn't released it brilliant? in the last couple of days, last few days. This is 250 journalists, 36 countries, uh, amazing storytelling about an area Australia. that's been completely ignored. In fact, Australians played a, a very prominent role mm. in this. So this is another example of where the media is doing really good things around investigative reporting. Yeah, I had a quick question for you about the investigative journalism because you're the only organisation that's won the major awards in three countries, in Australia, the UK and the US. But you made the point before that your original reporting and your investigative reporting is what's driving reader interest and also donations, which is not how it used to be in the past. Investigative reporting used to be a drain on the resources <laughs> of a media outlet, it used to cost a lot of money and you required the advertising to subsidise it. What does this signal to you that readers really value yeah, it's really exciting because it's still incredibly expensive, of course. It hasn't got any cheaper. Um, <laughs> um, if anything, it's harder now. Uh, I think it just shows what all along what readers valued, but perhaps what they particularly value in this political moment. It's a moment of crisis all around the world. They've got the rise of populism all around the world, rise of the far right in many places. And I think people want those people held to account. Readers want those people held to account. They want uh, the powerful to be challenged. Um, and they feel it more acutely, I think, perhaps than they did in the past in a in a more relaxed, more comfortable time. And here perhaps is a good news story too in that readers differentiate between different quality of media. They don't just lump all media into one basket when they talk about distrust of media, although often surveys only give us that very rudimentary figure. They actually differentiate between quality outlets, whether it be your um, newspaper, online production, whether it be the Washington Post, whether it be the ABC here. That's good. I mean, if you think that's true, I mean, I do worry that all the attacks on journalism from Trump down do sort of undermine the whole profession. And I do worry about that trust factor. Um, I think it, the trust needs to be really carefully maintained. True. However, attacks on journalists, both verbal and physical, are on the increase. I mean, I don't know what the latest figures are, Andrew. You might have them. I'd... Well, I, funnily enough, I looked them up <laughs> earlier. And uh, the figures this year are appalling. There are 48 dead journalists, 262 imprisoned and 59 missing globally. 
Um, and the Jamal Khashoggi case in Turkey underscores that. I mean, it's just such a brazen example of abuse uh, of journalists and such an appalling case. It became a cause, you know, um, celeb internationally, but at the heart of it was just this brutal, appalling murder of somebody underscoring the danger that journalists face. And and that it wasn't, um, well, and Trump, dare I say it, mentioned it again, he not only... He not only uh, kept talking about, he kept talking about quite openly and seemingly without any awareness that he would talk on, in, a one, in the one sentence about the trade relationship that America has with Saudi Arabia and how it's worth so much money and this the, the life of a man who not only was dead but had been murdered in the most horrible and chilling way and and not public, but brazen, as you said, Andrew. And so he, he just kept saying those t- two things in the same mm-hmm. sentences and nobody seemed to kind of say, do you understand what you're saying, how you are, you know, how you're calibrating or, or calculating a human life? I guess, Kath, there's an outlet um, such as yours that has done significant investigative journalism that's come with risks, such as the NSA and the Snowden leaks. Are these examples where media freedom's decreasing and has done consecutively for 13 years, are these things that concern um, your organisation and also uh, the protections that you can offer to your journalists? Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly frightening and alarming. And I, I, I agree with you, the way Trump spoke about it was particularly um, disturbing. But it does feel like it's a whole c- continuum of ha- of um, sort of downgrading of journalist protections in all sorts of ways, from source protection to whistleblower protection, to, to even when we talk about the devaluing the role of journalism in democracies. Um, and you mentioned Facebook earlier, you know, the sort of um, the lack of understanding of what happens when um, all the advertising, say, goes to one organisation that is not interested in uh, public interest journalism in democracy and so on. It all seems to be a way of undermining uh, what journalists do um, and uh, devaluing our role in society just when it's needed more than ever. On a much more positive note, we've seen something happen in Australia this week that is potentially a game changer. We've seen uh, a donation of $100 million through a new philanthropic fund to fund journalism and ideas called the Judith Nielsen uh, Centre for Journalism and Ideas. This is an extraordinary announcement, isn't it? especially for Australia, by any standards, that much money. um, We don't have the philanthropic culture of the states and for it to go into journalism, it speaks to what you were saying, Kath, about we need to value journalism and here's someone um, putting a stake in the ground saying that they do. And it's such a gigantic sum, isn't it? Um, You just just hope that it gets spent uh, in the right way, Uh, gets spent on public interest journalism um, and doesn't get sort of frittered away on sort of small projects, but actually is, is, is spent on something really meaningful. Do you think it has to be spent on something really big and not a bunch of, say, a bunch of 10 really good small because projects? One yeah, of the 10 really good it. small projects, <laughs> definitely, but not, okay. but not 10 not very good small projects. Because right. one of the things about <laughs> it is that it is funding journalism as well as the, you know, the, the things that incubate good ideas and create new ways of doing it. It's well, actually is, it, also is it just funding, funding journalism? journalism? I mean, no, it's one aspect of it. One aspect. I mean, ideas is in their title. But I, but also from what I can glean, it's it's also about training and education for journalists. Like the most journalists go through their working lives with very little um, of the kind of continuing professional development that is very common in the law or in architecture or in you know accounting or whatever. They're just taken for granted there, and yet um, don't we don't journalists need that now more than ever? A because they haven't had it, and B because the, the way in which journalism is being done, the sort of technology, etc., is so is so different to the way it was and changing all the time. 
you know. Given that we have a global editor in our mists here, 2019, would you be uh, brave enough to be able to give maybe two or three developments or trends that you think are going to be big in journalism next year and beyond? Can you give me two minutes to work yeah, on yeah, sure. <laughs> Andrew, have you got a view on this? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, well, I do, but I will have. Give me a 30 seconds. Okay, so, well, I, I mean, you might, you might expect me to say this, but I do think there's going to be a growth in people looking at reader funding models and how that will work towards uh, funding quality journalism. Um, I and, and then I think the other big challenge for next year is how we deal with um, the rise of the far right and how we report on it without um, inflaming it or over-exaggerating it. And I think there would be two of the big challenges for next year. And in terms of techniques, what role do you think data journalism is going to play and also big leaks like we saw with WikiLeaks and NSA? So, um, uh, you know, the more the better. Um, and <laughs> Spoken like an editor. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, data journalism is only going to play an increasing role. And I think if you're ever going to say to a young journalist, what should you, what skills should you get uh, that others might not have, it would be that um, because it, there's more and more data available and more and more stories buried in the data that we need to dig out. So can I, can I just ask on that, is it data obviously turns off a lot of people, not only journalists, but the readers and viewers and listeners. To what extent are we getting smarter about telling stories well that are kind of data-based or data-derived? Yeah, I, I actually, I think data visualisation and so on, that's one aspect to it. But actually the bit that I meant was how you find stories in the data. It's uh, how you dig into the data, the data mining aspect of it. I think that's where, because that's where, you know, it's, how, it's getting stories that way rather than necessarily um, portraying them. In fact, some of the best data stories, you don't see a number in the story. Right. It's all hidden. Yeah. For example, crime statistics. Let me just throw one last one at you if I can, Catherine. Um, any other innovative ways of telling stories that you can either see coming over the horizon um, that you think would be exciting and interesting? Mm. I mean, again, I feel like I feel like the focus has shifted away from at the moment, from how we tell to how we find stories. I think mm. there's such a hunger for revelations and insights and exposes. That said, I think, you know, podcasts, I'm on a podcast. So um, hot right now. They're so hot right now. Um, they couldn't be hotter. Um, um, I think they're too hot. I think actually maybe they maybe they've peaked. Podcasts have peaked. I think they're on the way. Maybe down. they're peaking oh, okay. this afternoon. Yeah. So <laughs> right here in this studio. Yeah. So we're we're back in a declining industry. You know, that's the nature of podcasts. Well, academia as well. Me, you know, let's, we haven't talked about. For me, I think one of the great developments that continues to unfold is collaboration. The nature of it. And mm. I think we're going to see exciting. that in new ways and new places. I agree. Very and exciting. I think we're going to start seeing it in geographical regions where we haven't seen it and perhaps across the Pacific, across Africa and ways of linking up voices from different dimensions and making stories much fuller and more diverse. As yeah, and collab collaborating not just with other news organisations but with any other other, other kinds of organisations who happen to be working in the public interest as yeah. well. So it's, a, it's actually mm -hmm. a very exciting time to be a journalist. I agree. Oh, it definitely is. A very positive way to end it too. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. Kath Viner, the Editor-in-Chief of The Guardian. And that's it for Media Files. You can find Media Files on Pocket Casts or on The Conversation. Production this week, Andy Hazel and Gavin Neighbour. Thanks also to co-hosts Matthew Rickardson and Andrea Carson. I'm Andrew Dodd. Till next time, goodbye. <laughs>